0: I have not talked to anyone for two years, it's been such an isolated process but I also realized that maybe because uh, the entire process of my show has been done through the mediation of the screen, the show is actually the opposite it's extremely material concrete
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein and this is The Art Man podcast from Art.net News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This April, after a punishing two years apart during the pandemic, the whole art community will gather together on the magical, watery isle of Venice for its periodic ritual assessment of what the world's finest artists have been thinking about and making to grapple with our changing world. They call this climactic event the Venice Biennale, and each time it is presided over by a visionary figure whose role it has been to transmute the work of all these artists into a coherent statement about our time. This year, that exalted figure is named Cecilia Alemani. Cecilia is a professional art curator whose day job is curating art for New York's Highline, and the Venice Biennale is just a big exhibition. But at least to me, the show always has an aura of the religious about it, where we get to commune with the biggest and best ideas floating around the globe. And this time around, the globe is in rare and urgent need of big ideas, with existential crises raging all around us that need to be understood and reckoned with now. So can this year's edition of the Venice Biennale help? To find out, I'm very happy to have Cecilia Alamani on the show today to talk about her big exhibition, which is beautifully titled The Milk of Dreams. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Cecilia.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today.
1: So where are you zooming in from right now?
0: I'm zooming in from my apartment in Venice, in Via Garibaldi. For those who know Venice, is between the Arsenale and the Giardini.
1: So Very conveniently located for, <laughs> I'm sure, what must be constant sprints <laughs> back and forth. So having had the great pleasure of delving into all the materials around your Biennale, it's clear that this has the makings of a sensational, mind-expanding show. It's also clearly been a Herculean process to get here. How are you feeling about all of it today
0: well i'm feeling pretty good you know i've been working on this show for over two years and finally i'm here on site opening crates hanging artworks so it's the best part of this very very long journey of course i look very much forward to celebrating with you all and with the artists but installation time is extremely excited and you know it's been two long years of preparations quite isolated so finally we're here in person with the artwork so this is a it's a really effervescent time
1: so to kind of spell out the journey the venice biennale announced that you would be its next curator all the way back in january of 2020 so How did you think that you were going to be able to go about putting the show together, which is already an incredibly ambitious task? And then how did your plans potentially change a little bit when uh, events changed?
0: You know, the first six months of the preparation has been quite hectic because, as you said, I was appointed in January and six weeks afterwards, the pandemic became very much a reality for all of us also in, in the States. And then not even two months after the show got postponed. So in the first six months of preparation, I kind of started again three times. Uh, And so, you know, the luxury of having a bit more time, at that point I decided, you know, maybe it's better that I just... uh, Focus very much on research and talking to the artists. And so I started basically doing hundreds of studio visits, of course, in the sad world of Zoom (laughs) because I couldn't travel and I couldn't even go to studios in New York. You know, it was a full immersion, but it was great because it gave me also the opportunity of having lots of very thoughtful and profound discussions with many people that, of course, I didn't know. And, uh, you know, of course, it's not the same as being in the studio with an artist and being able to smell the oil paint or just walk around the sculpture. But at the same time, I think the conversations that came out were very, very profound. So they really merged into the structure of the
1: show. And were there any trends or common themes that seemed to reveal themselves through these conversations?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I started very much thinking about the idea of metamorphosis and transformations, and that was very much my initial idea. And then seeing also what was happening in the world and very much what was in people's mind, I started expanding the show to include thinking how our bodies and ourselves are changing with, you know, the clash of technology and the machine in general, and then also our relationship with the surroundings being other people, the environment, the planet, but also other forms of life. And this really came out of conversations with artists, both in terms of very much existential preoccupations, but also content of artworks. So I feel like, you know, if you ask me trends, it's hard to say, especially in the beginning, you know, what I noticed was everything was completely frozen, meaning that so many artists I talked to, they felt, you know, were part of this big machine that works when it's well-oiled, but as soon as one element is out of function, everything breaks down. So I think the, the most common feeling, especially in the first year or so, was sort of a paralysis and not knowing what to do next in our very accelerated world. But that also created a space for more maybe introspective investigation and also kind of confessional. So I think the idea of how our body changing with the evolution of technology, but also on the other side, can we imagine a different relationship with the surroundings, one that is not of exploitation, uh, but is one of symbiosis or collaboration.
1: And as you're gathering together all of this research data, all of these, you know, clues as to where the artists are going in their work, what did you see as the goal for yourself as the curator of the Venice Biennale. What is the objective in putting a show together?
0: It's a broad objective. And to be honest, it was very much kind of a moving target because for the whole duration of my preparation, I had basically no certainty. I mean, I knew in my heart that this show would happen at some point, but the goal, you know, it's on one side, of course, trying to grasp and represent what I've seen and I met in these past two years, which is unique. I mean, it's due to the pandemic. It's not necessarily about the pandemic, but it at least had a very unique genesis. The second goal is also to sort of, I try to zoom out from the uber contemporary and try also to create a show that is transhistorical and really tells different stories at the same time and different temporalities. And this, of course, you know, I had more time so I could do that. It's really hard to do it in just one year, which is usually the time that a curator puts together this giant show. And then also try to look at things from a faraway perspective, like a zoomed out perspective and looking at this edition of the Biennale not just as one edition that maybe it's juxtaposed just to the previous one, but in a lineage of exhibition, especially thinking that the Venice Biennale has been around for 127 years. So the idea of looking back is not just uh, because it's always great to put in dialogue the old and the new, but it's also to see those stories that have been obliterated and kind of forgotten also by the institution itself of the Biennale. So this sort of movement back and forth was quite important in my exhibition making.
1: Now, I think one thing that is relevant to this edition of the show is that in that 127 year history of the Biennale, you are actually only the fifth woman to ever organize the show. And remarkably, you are unique in history as being the only Italian woman to ever organize the Venice Biennale. Yeah. How did that inform your work here?
0: If you say like that, it's also kind of very sad, you know, thinking that there have been 58 editions of the Venice Biennale before me. And it's very sad because I keep thinking about the amazing women that came before me They could have done an incredible job and they were never part of it. But regardless of that, you know, I feel like it's a tremendous sense of responsibility because, uh, I have a platform where I can really establish something that is, of course, beyond myself. And it's also a little bit of a symbolic gesture. But the idea of giving a lot of space to women artists and a bit of a different structure for this exhibition was really important.
1: Coincidentally, there are a lot of Italian women artists both living and historic in your show. (laughs) I think more Italian women are represented in this edition than ever before. I mean, by multiples. I think about two dozen are in the show, which is about a tenth of all the artists. And I wonder, is that a coincidence or is that maybe not such a coincidence?
0: You know, I think there is something about the Venice Biennale that it is such an international show. Usually when you go, I don't know, if you go to the Berlin Biennale or to São Paulo, you always assume you're going to see a lot of local artists You never have that assumption, I think, when you go to the Venice Biennale. You know, you assume you're going to see a very international show, not a show about Venice or about Italy. Part of it because it's often being curated by international curators and some of them have done a good job in including Italian artists. But of course, being Italian, I also felt more responsibility. And, you know, there are incredible artists working in Italy, I think. The hardest part for the Italian art scene is that it's really hard for them to leave the country and to kind of have a career abroad. Of course, there are a few exceptions, but we don't have the same structures that exist in other countries in Europe that really support, you know, residencies and program of exchange. So I hope to be able to give them a right amount of space and exposure because they're amazing. And so I want to make sure that the international audience can get to know them.
1: And now you called your biennial the milk of dreams after an illustrated children's book of that name by the British born Mexican surrealist artist Leonora Carrington. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that title and the role that Carrington plays in the show?
0: So I got to the title very late, to be honest. I did not start from the title. I did not necessarily start from Leonora Carrington. I got to Surrealism quite early. It's been a passion of mine for many years. Uh, And I think we all kind of agree now that Surrealism is in the air. It's not just my show, but there have been incredible exhibitions in the last five years, uh, exhibitions that really try to sort of challenge the idea that, or the sort of definition of surrealism as a European male thing. So not just Fantastic Women, which was this great show about the women of surrealism that was at the Louisiana, but a show that is currently, or maybe just close at the Met, about international surrealism. So looking at surrealism from different perspectives. So there has been an incredible critical and academic job done by colleagues and museums I mean, of course, I've always loved her and I knew that I wanted to include some historical works, but then I started reading her writings and that really opened another dimension for me because on one hand, I think I always love when an artist that you mainly know as a painter or as a visual artist then also writes and her writings are really incredible because you know, they're like, in a way, very simple, very joyful, but also quite macabre. And most importantly, they have irony and humor, which is a side that was very absent in her male colleagues. So there is this collection of short stories that is hilarious. Uh, One of my favorite books of hers is the Hearing Trumpet, uh, which is the story of Two old ladies. Apparently, it was herself and Remedios Varo, and how they deal with the old age, but in a in a very funny and light and kind of spiritual way, so a very unusual portraiture of the elderly time. And then I, I ended up finding this little book of children's story, which I didn't know before. And in a way, everything that I was working on in terms of thinking about metamorphosis, but also thinking about the atmosphere of surrealism or magic, it just came together and it brought everything together in also very, very simple and very visual way. And so, as I often do, I stole the time, title from her because uh, I always like titles that are actual titles of things, (laughs) names of things and not too conceptual. So that seemed to be perfect, although it kind of opened up for all array of different (laughs) definitions and interpretations that (laughs) probably tickle everyone's fantasy.
1: And now, of course, you know, Surrealism is a movement that took flight almost 100 years ago, you know, give or take. Do you think there are any echoes across history in what our society is going through currently that make this an echo that has some substance to it?
0: To be fully honest, it's not something that I realized when I started working on this. But if you think about it, surrealism began in 1924, just after the end of the First World War and in between, of course, the two wars and had a sort of deep relationship, not just with the war, but also like a movement against totalitarianism and the military. And although, of course, now what I'm saying is very much about what we are living now with the war in Ukraine. But in a way, if you think about the past six years with Trump and everything that has been happening, I think you could say that there is a sort of parallel between the two historical moments. And in a way, to me, it's also quite visible in the figure of Leonora Carrington herself and She was in her 20s when she got close to surrealism in Paris in the mid-30s. And then as a young woman alone, she escaped and she moved to first New York and then Mexico City. And in a way, her attitude probably towards the stereotypes and the cliché that were attributed to her as a beautiful young woman. So she was kind of dealing with the identity and trying to challenge those notions of very stereotypical female identity in a very similar way, I think, of what's happening right now. Of course, because of different causes. So I do think there are lots of echoes and rhymes between the two historical moments.
1: And in terms of the flip side of Surrealism's anti-authoritarian, anti-fascist, kind of sensibility. Another movement that's very well represented in the show is interestingly Futurism, which was actually the polemical movement that sprang up in Fascist Italy as a way of glorifying technological advancement, particularly when it came to the dazzling new weapons of World War I. So the Futurists included in the show, I think as is uh, common in other areas, they're all women, like Benedetta Cappa, Giannini Censi. Why did you decide to bring in these artists?
0: Because uh, as I'm organizing these historical uh, exhibitions, which I'm calling historical capsules, I've been looking less at specific movements and more at content and methodologies. So in one of these presentations, I'm putting together both many artists from many female artists from surrealism, but also some futurists, uh, because, of course, they were active not like 10 years apart or at the same time. And yes, you know, usually futurism is associated, like many other movements of the 20th century, with Marinetti and Balla and, you know, the famous male artists. But there were amazing women working sometimes in the periphery of these movements. And they had also radical visions about gender and identity, which sometimes was conveyed through their artworks, other times through really powerful articles and books and writing. So I wanted to bring them into the show because especially in this presentation, I'm trying to look at what was the counter-representation of the modern woman in the 1920s and 30s. It's hard to talk about surrealism in Italy. It was very much a futurism, but also futurism that took on uh, magical and occultist terms as well. And it was mainly done by the women artists in the movement.
1: There are a lot of artists of, you know, our time, who are also very drawn to technology, to the, the whiz and bang of uh, technological advancement. And so I wonder, in terms of futurist, how many NFTs are, are going to be in your exhibition?
0: You know, it's an excellent question because, uh, and this I have to confess, I realized just after the press conference, because you also need to know that I have not talked to anyone for two years. <laughs> it's been such an isolated process. But I also realized that maybe because... Uh, the entire process of my show has been done through the mediation of the screen. The show is actually the opposite. It's extremely material, concrete. There is no NFT. Of course, there are great films and videos, but I probably stayed far away from all VR, AR, extremely digital experiences because I think what I've missed the most is the physical contact with... Art and with paintings and sculptures and installations. So it is a show that pulls in the body in a very physical way. So as far as I know, there is no NFTs. So you never know, maybe somebody will bring or will install or will present one. But I think that the investigation of the relationship with technology is very present in the show but also with very traditional media like also with paintings and sculptures so hopefully you'll be able to see that even without crazy screens and digital experiences
1: i mean just to make sure that the nft listeners out there are not too disappointed i think that that community could really benefit from engaging with the art of vera molnar who uh, is in the show and who is the 98-year-old Hungarian living pioneer of generative art, who I think is is underappreciated. By. Yeah.
0: Vera Molnar is an amazing Hungarian artist, and I'm including a number of drawings that she made in the 70s that were The very, very first drawings made with computers. And so, again, when I talk about the relationship between the body and technology, I don't necessarily mean, again, super, super contemporary technologies. But thinking, especially in the 60s and 70s, to a group of artists that were confronting themselves with the excitement of having these new incredible machines that were all of a sudden available and they used them in different ways, of course, Vera Molnar explored the, again, these computer drawings and, by the way, she's going to have also an exhibition as a collateral event in Venice. She's actually uh, doing experimentation with glass but also thinking of, uh, there is another historical capsule that brings together Italian artists working in the 60s in what was called, of course, programmatic art and kinetic art. Uh, So artists that have used the language of abstraction but not per se, but always not just fascinated by new technologies and new materials like plexiglass and neon and, of course, stainless steel and the reflection, but through the distortion and reflection, pulling in the body and creating this sort of membrane and... uh, threshold between themselves and another world. So again, thinking of technology, not necessarily through the evolution of the medium, but also in a historical way, what were the kind of groundbreaking moments in the 60s and 70s that introduced new languages and made artists very excited about adopting them?
1: So one of the aspects of your show that has gotten the most attention is not only how many female or gender non-conforming artists are in it, but how proportionally few artists who identify as men are actually included. Only about 21, which is one-tenth of the overall artist population, about the same proportion as Italian women artists. So it reminds me that in Leonora Carrington's work, she often presented women as kind of these fonts of mystical power and wisdom whose powers were only curtailed by the presence of men. And (laughs) I wonder, was something like that going on in your mind when you were assembling the show? And how did the male identified artists who you did include, how did they make the cut?
0: Again, it was a process. So I invited the artists that I wanted to work with Many of whom happen to be women. I did not sit down and say, "Oh, I want to do 90% women and 10% men." I, had, you know, I hate numbers and quotes and quotas. But at some point, I realized that I had a very big number of women. But then, you know, the time I wanted to invite a man, I invited a man. So there are few artists that identify as such. But in a way, it also became sort of irrelevant. I really wanted to work with the artists I thought were the most talented and that could contribute the most to the exhibition. Things kind of turn a bit more intentional when I started working on these historical capsules that are uniquely focused on women artists. And that is more like a historical kind of look back uh, and trying to necessarily rewrite history because I don't have that ambition, but telling those stories that have been, again, obscured, obliterated, forgotten, but they are so relevant, uh, in my opinion, to the artists of today. And I wanted to be able to create this uh, constellation of artworks that I hope when the viewer will see them, they then will see the contemporary artworks that are in the following rooms through different eyes. And I'm not necessarily claiming that one influenced the other or vice versa, but is about this effort also turning back and rereading our past, not as a sort of static and immobile art history, but like reinterpreting also the work, like you said, the future is with a new lens and a new vision. So always look back to find also new inspirations for the future.
1: I think that one thing I'm always excited about when going to the Biennale is that When you come to a show of this kind of scale and ambition there are always some artists in the show who kind of stretch the visitors expectations about what the boundaries of art are and who can count as an artist and i think there's some interesting ones in your show so for instance can you tell me a little bit about anna coleman lad
0: yeah anna coleman lad was an american Traditional traditional artist from the beginning of the 20th century and at the um, beginning of the First World War, she decided to move to Europe, she moved to France, and uh, she had learned about the studios in England that were helping people that have fought in the war and got hurt and disfigured many times by the war and had them creating prostheses and like facial masks to sort of re-enter society in a way that, for lack of a better word, more acceptable at the time. And so she did the same. She opened a studio in Paris where she would make these casts and these masks for soldiers whose face was completely disfigured. Uh, and so we're showing a number of photographs of her sort of patients, but also like an original mask. I think it was from 1917. Uh, Her work is included in one of these historical presentations, in particular the one that looks at the idea of the cyborg, so this sort of hybrid creature between human and machine. And this presentation is very much focused on the early avant-garde, so the like Dada and Bauhaus. So, of course, people know that the term cyber was invented in 1960. But actually, the claim of many critics and art historians is that many artists uh, from the Dada and Bauhaus movement really. Um, investigated these hybrid creatures that were often female and that really brought together the human and the artificial, often using masks and props and prostheses.
1: And then another artist who's in the show, who is much better known for other aspects of her output other than visual art, is Josephine Baker. So Mm -hmm. how did Josephine Baker come into the show?
0: Josephine Baker is uh, in the first capsule, which is more about metamorphosis and surrealism, and and brings together a number of artists and cultural figures, you know, she was a dancer, that really challenged those uh, cliché and stereotypical notion of the woman seen by their male peer. And so, in a way, what she did when she moved to Paris in the 20s was really through also irony, kind of poking a finger to not just the sort of stereotypical vision of um, femininity, but also of, of a Black woman, of race in a very colonial time. So I wanted to include that as well. Also thinking, again, it's not necessarily a presentation about surrealism, but what was happening in the same years across, uh, you know, not just France, but also in the United
1: States. And then what about Millie Canavero. She was
0: an Italian. I mean, we can call her an artist, but she wasn't a practitioner artist. She was what you would call probably a medium artist. She was a woman that lived in Genoa. We know very little about her, but she made these incredible drawings that look completely geometric, made with tools, but she made them with free hands. And she apparently was possessed when she had these uh, visions and put them on paper. Her work is uh, in one of these historical presentations that look more at the role of language in building a body and vice versa, how artists and uh, individuals have used their body for communicating with other dimensions and other worlds and with sort of the intention of breaking the linearity of language.
1: When I was going through the artist list and looking up all the artists, I kept on writing down in my notes, you know, quote, creator of haunting ghostly imagery. <laughs> and there are quite a few artists in that vein. And there are also quite a few artists in the show who specialize in, in this kind of sculptural techno-dystopian body horror, like Mira Lee, Ambra Castagnetti, Giulia Cenci, uh, Hannah Levy, I wonder, do you think that there's going to be a strong kind of haunted vibe in, in the exhibition?
0: You could say that, yeah. You know, it's also like such a big exhibition that there are many different souls of the exhibition, but I think that could be definitely one of the threads. And I think, you know, to me, the show always goes back to the relationship with the body, and sometimes the body's absent, and I think Mirrily is a very uh, good example. She's also just here installing... I think there are plenty of artworks and installations that hint at the body, but the body is absent. So hers are machines that evoke sort of the digestive systems of weird creatures and they really function almost like uh, organism, but you can't recognize what kind of realm they are they humans, are they animals, are they like weird bacteria or like machines gone crazy. And that's something that is quite, Present, especially let's say in the second part of the arsenale, where the temperature of the show becomes a bit more synthetic and artificial and colder and uh, slowly the sort of more traditional representation of the human body disappears and dissolves in this also in Giulia Change, in these weird creatures that are cast of hybrid beings and bring together dogs and horses and human faces. So yes, I think there is definitely that uh, line, which also starts with other medium artists that uh, are also from Italy. That are also in this historical capsule, like Palladino, Eusapia Palladino, you know who were like very very famous mediums in Italy. They would have seances where like ghostly presence and ectoplasm's would appear behind the unlucky or lucky visitor. So yes, there is certainly that.
1: So I, I, I'm my spine is tingling just thinking about it. I'm really <laughs> excited. So there there's a, a theory that's been gaining. Um, traction called the Gaia hypothesis, which was popularized by Donna Haraway and other thinkers that all activity on earth from humans to animals, to nature, to technology is inextricably intertwined and in continual flux with every aspect fused into every other. Is there something similar that you're proposing in your Biennale with all these transfigurations, these these metamorphoses, mm-hmm. these uh, syntheses? Yeah,
0: yeah. I don't know if I would call it a, my proposition. I really think it's what I've seen a lot into artists' works in the past few years. And so many artists are portraying a cosmos and a universe uh, that is based on a different relationship between each other. It's a relationship of collaboration and symbiosis and sometimes, cheesy enough, like love and harmony and not one of hierarchy and exploitation. There are many artists, especially in the first part of the Arsenale, that really explore this sometimes imaginary, sometimes hopeful relationship with nature with a big N. So for instance, there is an artist from Lithuania called Egle Butitite that shot this very mesmerizing video of a group of young kids lost in a forest of lichen in in Lithuania and really where there is almost no distinction between their body and what surrounds them. Uh, And then something else that will happen in that section of the show is many artists that are rediscovering or reinterpreting old myths and mythologies and stories and folk tales from a contemporary perspective so reintegrating that dimension of myth uh, not in a sort of nostalgic way but as a tool to open up a different kind of epistemologies and forms of uh, knowledge that are let's say not what the western ones
1: in 2017 you had curated the Italian pavilion for the biennale And I have a very fond memory of that because you actually brought to life one of the most extraordinary art moments that I've ever experienced with Giorgio Andriato Kahlo's piece that filled this enormous empty warehouse and turned it into a dark reflecting pool, like a vision of the river Styx that leads to the underground, Mm -hmm. just (laughs) totally unforgettable. Can we expect to encounter sublime moments, you know, shocking moments like that in your show?
0: Uh, well, I can't tell you too much, but I think, of course, you know, when you do a pavilion is a different task because you're really highlighting the work of one or very few artists. In this case, as you know, I have 213 artists, so it's different, but of course, I have plenty of space. What's been very helpful for me is that I curated Italian pavilion back in 2017 which it is the biggest national pavilion in Venice and I had worked with a part of the team of the Venice Pinal already back then so that gave me definitely an advantage or disadvantage I don't know <laughs> so I try to structure the journey through the show especially in the Arsenale which is the toughest part alternating areas and zones of uh, concentration and kind of intimacy with more like broader experiences of maybe you want to call it spectacular pieces or larger pieces but trying to create a sort of dynamism between inwards and outwards because the space of the is quite boring because it's linear and has this column so I try to break that both through the capsules and also through the use of other kind of sort of exhibition tools to sort of create a journey that was not that linear. But there will be plenty of spectacular pieces, like the biggest installations are being built as I speak, because very often they're very dirty. So they have to be built right now before the artworks come in. But yes, there will be hopefully a bit for everyone.
1: So on a more somber note, first year biennial was upended by COVID. And now over the last month, the world has once again been thrown into crisis by the invasion of Ukraine, which has united much of the world in solidarity with Ukrainians' fight for freedom against Russia, including the Venice Biennale, which stated that it, quote, intends to manifest its full support to the Ukrainian people and its artists and to express its firm condemnation of the unacceptable military aggression by Russia. Now, part of the support is through the Biennale's effort to get the Ukrainian artist Pavlo Makov, who is representing his country at the Ukrainian Pavilion, and his art and his team out of the war-torn country and into Venice. And I I want to know, where does this effort stand today, and are you involved in that?
0: Yeah, so Pavlo Makov and uh, two other curators are here in Venice. They're safe. They made their way out of Ukraine. They are installing or about to install, uh, the Biennale has, uh, like many actually other institutions and friends and colleagues have shown an incredible support. We are helping them with all the sort of practicalities and any kind of help they might need. They managed to, take out of Ukraine the major sculptural installation that Pavlo made. But there were a few things that, of course, couldn't make it. So we are helping them, but they're in great shape. I think they're very happy to be here. I'm officially not involved with the pavilions, but of course, I'm doing as much as I can to help them. And so are so many friends and other national pavilions. I think they were welcomed here in a very warm way. And the the Venice Biennale often gets criticized because of this obsolete structure with the national pavilions, which, you know, has some truth, maybe. But in a way, sadly, or like, you know, in situations like the one that we're living for the past three weeks... You know, you go from the realm of symbolic to the realm of reality. And so the Biennale becomes also a stage for international diplomacy and at least to create a platform for conversations and debates that are way beyond art. So, of course, what's happening in Ukraine is absolutely tragic and despicable and really, honestly, completely heartbreaking to make you focus on art because who cares about art when, you know, there are people that are getting bombed. At the same time, I hope that Venice, uh, not just my show, but the Biennale with all its pavilion and the collateral events, because that's also what the Biennale has done in its 127 years of existence, you know, and also just walking around the Giardini. You know, I'm always uh, so incredibly struck when you walk around a miniature version of what Europe and the big, powerful nation-states of the 20th century were, it becomes a ground f- for you know, discussing matters that go way beyond just art.
1: Did you adapt the Milk of Dreams to make any comment on the situation in Ukraine? Like, for instance, did you have a, the temptation to include a piece by Maria Primochenko, the folk artist whose museum was bombed?
0: We are working together with the Ukrainian pavilion and other Ukrainian institutions to create a project or a space of solidarity and of support of Ukrainian art in general. Because, of course, you know, it's wonderful that the pavilion can happen, but there is much more (laughs) that is left out. And God knows when, you know, you'll see in person another artwork by Ukrainian artists, but we hope to support that. So we're working on that and other initiatives. You know, it's very, very fresh. And so we're, you know, we're doing as much as we can. Our priority was, is still to support the Ukrainian pavilion and in a way also to be a good partner and listen to what people are asking us, especially people from Ukraine, artists and other colleagues are recommending us and trying to see what the Biennale can offer in solidarity of um, the Ukrainian people
1: it's so clear that this is a very traumatic time that we're living through. And it seems that the Biennale is going to reflect that in a certain way that it, you know, it could come to be known as the trauma biennial in a sense. Do you think that there's any truth to that?
0: (laughs) Well, at this point I don't know anymore because I'm just waiting for like another catastrophe to come on my lap because it's been quite uh, intense. But you know what? If there is something that I've learned, a couple of years ago, we did this uh, exhibition when the architecture Biennale was postponed from 2020 to 2021. Basically, the pavilion was empty. So we did this exhibition called the Disquieted Muses, which looked at the archive, because that's the only thing that we had in Venice, that we could touch the archive of the Venice Biennale, which is an amazing archive that has been established in the 20s. And we did a show that looked at the history of the Venice Biennale in those moments in which the Biennale itself kind of clashed with a big history. So looking at the two world wars, looking, of course, at fascism time, at the 68, uh, and in the 70s, there were very political shows. So in a way, I think the, the strength of the Biennale is that you can tell different stories and you can absorb the traumas of the time, but you can also open up to the future. And I think, you know, one of the biennials that I always refer to is the 1948 Biennale, because it was the first edition after the Second World War. uh, And it was an edition that was incredibly open to new movement, to American art that rarely was exhibited before, to very contemporary production and at the same time, it did this job of looking back at all those uh, forms of expressions that were completely cancelled during the fascist time. So, for instance, Impressionism or Pablo Picasso, who had never shown in Venice until 1948 and he was 67 years old, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. So I think, you know, uh, a show can be both hopeful and also a seismograph of what happened in society. To me, the hardest part is that we're still very much into this traumatic time. It's hard to gain perspective.
1: This has been a very, very long journey for you. Years and years of upheaval. And how are you going to relax? (laughs)
0: I'm going to go in a retreat with no forms of Zoom, technology, phone, because my life in the last two years has been really miserable and i hope of course that i can go see art again in person but my former celebration is no more zoom no more computer because yeah it got to a very intense point
1: well congratulations i can't wait to come and see the fruit of all your labor thank you very much for coming thank on you so the show. much for
0: having me and come see the show it's up until the end of november so there is hopefully plenty of time
1: Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manolini, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.